0: Okay, thanks, Mark. Uh, <clears throat> it is a uh, a privilege to be with all you folks. Uh, actually, this is good. I, I, I've reached that age where if I take my glasses off, I can't see all you lovely folk down there. If I put them back on, I can't read my Bible properly, so I have to take them off again. So you might see me doing this, but... This light's good to read with, that's, that's great. Um, <clears throat> we're in the midst of harvest season, which is uh, a wonderful time of the year. And um, When uh, we knew that we were coming over with the exhibition, uh, David said to me, would you preach on Sunday evening? So I said, yeah, that, that's fine, what do you want? And he said, oh, we're going to be doing a session or a series on King Solomon and the, the uh, first 11 chapters of Kings. So anything you like from 1 Kings 1 to 11, which is a kind of a big ask, because if you read the story uh, the, of those 11 chapters, so I'm not going to read them all to you, don't worry. Uh, I'm not going to preach for them all. He said, I've got 75 minutes, uh, sorry, 25 minutes. Um If you read the story of King Solomon, uh, there's there's, there's loads and loads of stuff in there, Um, but just to give you a kind of a a quick flavor of the beginning of uh, King Solomon's reign, you have to take a couple of steps back and think, okay, King David, the famous uh, king, uh, who was a young man who'd killed Goliath and who'd been a great warrior uh, on behalf of the kingdom of Israel and he made a few mistakes, but somehow it seemed that uh, uh, God saw him as a, a, a man after God's own heart and blessed him. And David had quite a number of wives and ended up having quite a number of children. And his eldest son, Absalom, was amongst his favorites. And uh, Absalom was, uh, um, like his father, he was a great warrior, he was a great fighter. Uh, he was apparently a very handsome young man And he had a fabulous head of hair, but he realized it, and uh, pride got to him. Um, One day, he's uh, riding uh, through the woods into battle, and uh, he went under a tree and got his hair caught in the tree, and he broke his neck. He was either hung or he was strangled. And so David died, and it seems kind of a bit sad that all that potential was taken away, but it does seem that his his pride got the better of him. So the next in line would be the son of another woman uh, whose name was Adonijah, which is a really interesting name in Hebrew because Adonai means Lord or Sir, and Yah is the the, the name of God, so it, it is the Lord my God. So Adonijah... Great name, and would have been the, apparently. It seems a perfect replacement for, um, uh, for for David when David dies. But David had another wife who we read about called Bathsheba, and there was a whole lot of stuff went on with David and Bathsheba. He uh, he was married to someone else, and he saw Bathsheba in the bath, and he fancied her. So he had her husband bumped off on the battlefield, and. A lot of nasty subterfuge went on. But at this point, as David is, 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 is coming to the end of his life, Adonijah sees his chance. and He says, I'm going to be the king. And he gets himself anointed as king. And he gathers around him a bunch of fellows to come fight his battles with him. Uh, he gets some uh, religious um, advisors to come alongside him. And when uh, David's spiritual advisor, Nathan, hears about it, who's now, uh, as, 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 as David is kind of on his deathbed, uh, Nathan's not very happy with what Adonijah does. And so after David dies, Nathan goes and has a whisper in Bathsheba. Remember, this is, this is Solomon's mother, David's wife, okay? And he said, don't forget, go, go, go in and have a word. With, with David before he passes away. You haven't got much time, but go in there and remind him that he made a promise that Solomon was going to be the king in, in his place. And he said, and while you're in there, bending his ear, I'll stick my head round the door and say, hey, Lord, yeah, David, sir, your kingship, sire... I remember the conversation that you had with Bathsheba and you did say that Solomon could be the king. And that way we'll get Solomon to be the king. And so with a little bit of this subterfuge going on, Solomon does indeed become king. And of course Adonijah has his, his nose pushed out and uh, he's not too happy with the fact, but he decides he's going to put up with it. Okay? He's not going to be the king, but he's still doing pretty well for himself, but he's got a need for a wife. So, uh, he he goes and and, uh, he speaks with Bathsheba, who now, if you think she's the queen mother, or the king's mother, rather, and uh, he said, um, I'd rather like that young lady that looked after David when he was at the end of his life, Uh, could you go and have a word with the king and ask him if I can marry her? And Solomon says, well, what is this? You know, you you can't have my brother marrying my father's uh, nursemaid, it's not on. So he has a word with his right-hand man, his warrior uh, captain, and says, you go and put him to death. Uh, And then you kill the high priest. Uh, And then you go and uh, knock off um, uh, Adonijah's warrior leader as well. And so there's a purge in the the house of, of Solomon. And we think to ourselves, ooh, is this justified? Can we really do this? Is this a good thing? It seems really murderous, really ruthless to us. Uh, But if we read history, we see that lots of other leaders, lots of other kings were doing the same kind of thing. They were coming into place, and then to ensure that their position was safe, they'd knock off a few political rivals. Um, The question remains, does the Bible uphold it? Does it uphold bumping off your rival, plotting against them, uh, and the established order in order to reach your goals? Well, we know life's morals and uh, standards were quite different then. And there's a quote by a famous English historian, a a chap called Herbert Butterfield, and he said that if we study history, if we study the past with one eye, so to speak, on the present, he says that's the height of all sins and sophistries in history. It's the very essence of what we call unhistorical. So what he's saying is that, look, if we judge what happens in the past by our present-day standards, it leads to us making wrong assumptions about what happened in history. So maybe it's okay to bump off your rivals. Maybe the Bible does allow Solomon to do it. It appears like it. It appears uh, that that everything was okay. And when we look at Solomon's early life and see how he lived once he, he became established as king... We begin to see that "Mm, okay, it looks like there's some justification here. So if we uh, if you had a look at uh, the First Kings chapter three, one of the first things that happens is that uh, uh, Solomon he has a private conversation with God, and it said that Solomon loved the Lord. This is uh, chapter three verse three. He's walking in the statutes of David his father. He sacrificed and made offerings in high places, a mm, bit iffy there, he was using some of the, the pagan god places, uh, but he went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, which before the temple was built was one of the places where the Jewish people were sacrificing, and uh, it says that at Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said to him, ask what are you want, and I shall give it to you. And Solomon says, oh, you've shown me great and steadfast love to your servant, David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, in uprightness of heart towards you. You have kept him in his great and steadfast love. You've given him a son to sit on his throne to this day. Lord, my God, you've made your servant, me, Solomon, king in place of David, my father. But I'm only a little child and I don't know how to come in or go out. He's really making himself humble here before God. And he says, uh, Will you give to your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to govern your great people? And so it says, It pleased God that Solomon asked this, and God said to him, Because you have asked this, and you have not asked for yourself long life or riches, you have not asked for the life of your enemies, but if you have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I will do according to what you have asked. I'm gonna answer your, your, your request. And it says that um, I give you a wise and discerning mind. And so Solomon started to make righteous judgments. And of course, we know the famous story about the, uh, the two prostitutes that come. They bring a baby in. Um, one of them says, Look, we, we both had babies. Uh, we both went to bed last night, um, I woke up in the morning, my baby was gone, uh, when I looked for my baby, she's got it in her bed, and she rolled over in the night and, 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 and accidentally suffocated her baby, and now she's taken mine, I want my baby back, what are you going to do about it? And Solomon says, hmm, I said, sorry, what do you say about it? And the other woman says, no, no, this is definitely mine, it's hers that died, and they can't decide, so Solomon says, hmm. Give me a sword, give me the baby, we'll cut it in half and you can have half each. And the first woman goes, Okay, let her have the baby. And the second one was, No, 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 let's cut it in half. Let's do what the king says. So the king said, So obviously, the first woman's baby, she loves the baby enough to be able to give it up. The second one doesn't care anything about it and she'd be happy to cut it in half. And so Solomon was making some wise and interesting decisions. It goes on. Um, it says that Solomon was one of the wisest men who ever lived. And uh, it actually says that he was uh, wiser than this whole bunch of people. And one of them was He Man. Now, if anybody was kind of around in the 80s, it was really funny to think that Solomon was wiser than He Man, because He Man was one of the masters of the universe. But it it lists these these people who were obviously, uh, according to the the, the Bible, according to the Jewish people, these were the wise, the sages of the time. And Solomon's wisdom surpassed them all. And it says that he knew about plants from the great big cedar trees right down to the lowliest hyssop, which grows out of walls. He knew the names of all the animals. He says that some uh, tradition said that he could actually talk to the animals. Uh, He was making great decisions about the, the, the nation. And um, it must be okay because if God gave him the wisdom, then it must be all right. And one of Solomon's uh, great talents was that he was a building designer, he was a bit of an architect. And so he was able to fulfill David's dream of building a permanent temple. I remember the Israelites have been worshipping this kind of mobile tabernacle, this tent in the desert for all all those years, even to the time of David. But David said to God, I want to build you a temple. And God said, you can't build me a temple. You can't put me in a box. But hey, for your sake, because you are a man after my own heart, because um, you've you've got a, a good heart to your people, you want to follow my commandments, I'm going to give you the opportunity to build a temple. Actually, but not you. You've got blood on your hands, you've been a warrior. It's gonna to go to your son, he's gonna do it. And here Solomon comes along. And when we read about the temple in chapter six of these verses from 1 Kings, it describes how the temple was made. I'm not gonna give you a complete list, but this is what it says about some of the things that were in there. It says the walls were made of cedar wood. Cedar trees amongst the most beautiful wood that there is. Okay? They had to ship them in from the north of, of Israel, from Lebanon but the walls were made with cedar wood. So that's inlaid on the walls that are made out of the beautiful cream limestone that you get from the hills around Jerusalem. But the cedar wood walls were then overlaid with gold. And then there were olive wood cherubims which were made. So a bit like the the representation of the cherubim here, they were made out of olive wood. Olive wood, again, it's very beautiful, lovely grainy wood. But it says that the engraved cherubim also had with them engraved palm trees, open flowers, and all of it was overlaid with gold. And then there was cypress wood. And from cypress wood, they carved the doors. And on the doors, there were palms, there were flowers, there were grapes, there were pomegranates. There were two pillars made out of bronze, which were 27 feet high. They had capitals with lily flowers engraved on them, seven feet six high, all engraved in gold. And then there was a huge sea outside the temple. It's a great big bowl. It's uh, probably as, as wide as this church building. And that was standing on top of 10 bullocks. And the bullocks had panels beneath their, their, their legs, between their feet, on which were uh, inscribed lions and cherubim on the wood. And it was all engraved and inlaid in gold. And it took Solomon seven years to build the temple. And it must have been fabulous. You know, he had all these these experts helping him. It talks about Hiram, who was a a carpenter and woodworker, from from, again, from the north of the country. It talks about experts in the metalwork and all these people building it, and it took seven years to build it. And then it goes on to describe his palace, and it describes his palace in a very similar way. And here's the first little alarm bell that rings, because it says that when he built his palace, it took him 13 years to build it. So, the temple to God, seven years, his own palace, 13 years. Mm. So, Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived. It also says that he was probably the richest man that ever lived. Now, as I was sitting there before, we, uh, before I came up to speak, I was just having a look down here. What have we got? Beautiful box of foxes, chocolate biscuits. That would be really nice. Um, I saw a, a, a tin of jalapeno cherries. Uh, there's tins of baked beans. Tins of hot dog sausages, Dolmio tomato sauce. Sounds beautiful. More than enough for one person here. Solomon's day's rations, it lists 6,600 litres of flour, fine flour. Okay, so he's having to feed his palace and his retinue, but it's uh, a lot of food. And that was only the best flour, the ordinary flour, the day-to-day flour, 13,200 litres. So one litre of flour is equivalent to a kilogram of flour. So you know the the standard bag of flour that we buy at the supermarket? That's uh, uh, 19,800 bags of flour every day. And on top of that, they slaughtered 10 oxen and 20 pasture-fattened cattle, 100 sheep, and on top of that, there were the deer and gazelle, roebucks, fowls, which were unnumbered. And Solomon liked horses. He had a stables with 40,000 stalls for horses. He had 12,000 horsemen to look after them. And they were fed on the best barley and housed in the best straw. And some of those horses were amongst the best in the world. It describes them as swift horses. Solomon was not only king of Israel, but he was also head over lots of little mini kingdoms which surrounded Israel. And as you look at the, 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 the history of those mini kingdoms, you find out that from those places, they had metal mines, so there was copper, there was gold coming from the south. There were precious stones, there were um, unguents and, and ointments and liniments which were being imported and there were spices. Um, back in that time spice was, was actually not something just nice that you smell but it was actually you use it in currency. Solomon had all this stuff coming into to, to his kingdom and he was using lots of it and he was um, um, really showing off this opulent lifestyle and that opulent lifestyle attracted other people and more kings, more dignitaries came to visit him and bought him stuff and he began to build it up and build it up and so Going back to where we started, was it right? Did Solomon start off his, 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 his reign right by bumping off his brother-in-law and the high priest and his, his father's best warrior? It seems like it might have been okay because Solomon was really successful. But when we look at when Solomon finished building the temple, it says that he brought into the temple the Ark of the Covenant, And inside the Ark of the Covenant, it says, was found only the testimony of God. Now, the testimony of God is the Ten Commandments, okay? The two stone tablets with the the Ten Commandments that Moses had brought down from the mountain. And for the Jewish people, those stone tablets, they are the thing that shows that the Jewish people are a people. Because what happened was Moses went up the mountain, and he had this conversation with God, and God said, look... Uh, I want to have a relationship with the Jewish people. I want to be their God and king. I want them to be my people. If we can get some agreement here, I'll promise to look after you and keep you safe and provide for you and give you everything that you need. But I'm going to have to have the people say that they agree to following the commandments. But he said, but at the moment, they're a bunch of disparate people and they disagree on everything. And if you've ever had any dealings with people from the Middle East, you can hear it all the time. They disagree. Uh, They enjoy disagreeing over politics and theology and which is the best olive oil to cook with and uh, where's the best place to go on holiday. And God says, I can't have that. I need a people that live in unity. Here's some laws. You go down the hill, uh, go down the mountain, Moses, and you ask the people, and if they'll accept these and listen to them and become one, then I'll be their God. So Moses goes down the mountain. He says to the people, look, I've got a deal for you. God will be our God, but we've got to listen to these 10 commandments, and we've got to obey them. What do you think? And the people go, okay, we'll do it. And they go for it. And the Jewish people say that that is the moment when the Jewish people, the Hebrew people, became a people. So that was there inside the Ark of the Covenant when uh, Solomon uh, set up the temple. But if you go back into um, Exodus, it also says that inside the Ark of the Covenant were two other things. One was a jar of manna. Now, the manna was the miraculous food that the Israelites uh, got from heaven when they were in the desert. This is the Israelites. They have been living as slaves in an urban setting in Egypt for 430 years, okay? They used to be wanderers in the desert. They end up in Egypt. For a time, they were kind of well thought of and well looked after, but eventually uh, the Egyptians decided they didn't like the Hebrew people anymore and they pulled them into slavery. But they were living in cities and they were um, being forced to build things in Egypt. So suddenly to find yourself free and back in living in a tent in the desert, you think, whoa, you know, where do we get the food from? Where do we get the water from? And God said, look, I'm gonna look after you. You get in the, up in the morning and there'll be this kind of weird flaky stuff that, that, that appears after the, the, the dew dries. Uh, it's gonna taste like almonds. You collect enough of it during the day to feed yourself and your family. and then at the end of the day, if there's any left, you get rid of it. You don't keep it till the morning because it'll be moldy. And so the Israelites lived on this thing called manna for 40 years. And God said to them at the end of the the period of exile, you put a jar of it into the Ark of the Covenant, and then the people will remember that I provided for them. And the other thing that was in there was a staff. Now, those of you that have been to the exhibition will remember... Um, There's a couple of people with staff. So the shepherd's got one, a stick. It's kind of the, it's a bit like a badge of office as well as being a a useful tool when you're in the desert. But Aaron had a staff and it was made out of an olive tree. And this amazing thing happened, if you remember, that the staff was cut and it was a dead stick like this. But God said to Moses, "Look, I want you to um, to have a word with Aaron and um, and 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 get him to 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 put the staff down." And in the morning, the staff had budded, it had blossomed, it had borne fruit, almond fruit, off a dead stick, mm-hmm. and. The reason that God said to Aaron, put it there, was because the people had rebelled. There was a group of people who were, they were a bit sick of the manna, to be quite honest. It says that, well, you go back to Egypt, we got cucumber and garlic and quails. I'm not quite sure what Jamie Oliver or you know some of the chefs would make of cucumber or garlic and quails. I'm sure they could come up with something. But <clears throat> that's what they were hankering after. They were grumbling and they were saying, no, this Moses doesn't know what he's doing. He's kind of walking us around in circles in the desert. So God brought judgment on those that were grumbling and then said to, uh, to Aaron and to Moses, you put this staff that's budded in the ark of the covenant. That'll remind the people not to grumble against me, not to rebel against against my law. And so three things were supposed to be in the ark. But when we come to um, <clears throat> seeing the, the time when Solomon um, puts the ark into the ark, the, the, um, the, the new temple that he's just built, it says, there's only one thing in there, there was only the law, there was only God's rules and regulations. Now, one of the things that we try and teach when, when we're, we're involved with the Bible come to life is to try and read the scriptures as Jewish people would read it. They would see that phrase that it said it contained only the law, and they go, why? What are the things that are missing? What did they represent? So what were the things that were missing? It was the jar of manna. What does the jar of manna represent? It represents God's provision for us. Everything that we need, you know, whether it's your domino sauce, your box of foxes, chocolate biscuits, your jar of hot dogs, your jalapeno peppers, whatever it is, whether it's the beautiful stuff that you've got outside and the display, the fruit and vegetables, it comes from God. God provides us with everything. That was missing. The other thing that was missing was Aaron's rod, which was the symbol that says, this is to remind you not to rebel against me. This is the symbol of my people. Because all down history, even till today, the almond branch that's, uh, that's blossoming is a reminder to the Jewish people of, of, that they are God's people. The almond tree is the first tree that blossoms in Israel in sort of late January, early February. The the spring comes a little bit early there. It's the first thing that blossoms, the first thing the Jewish people see, and it's a reminder that they were the first fruits. They were supposed to be the first people that had a covenant relationship with God. And when they they saw the, the almond tree blossoming, it's supposed to remind them that they were to be the first fruits. That too was missing. And I think what this indicates is that Solomon has missed his mark. How do we miss his mark? We see if we read in chapter 11, something has gone wrong with Solomon's wisdom. Because at this point, he's got 700 wives. I know disrespect ladies, but that means 700 mothers-in-law. <laughs> now, it says wives and princesses. Maybe some of those women were to make political alliances, we don't know. But what it does clearly say is some of those women worshipped other gods than the God of Israel. And God quite clearly said to the Israelites, you don't marry out. You don't marry Philistines, uh, any of all those ites that uh, the, the, the scripture talks about, you know, the Jebusites, the... Um, all the other of you look them up for yourself, but you don't marry them because they worship other gods and they'll turn your heart from me. And that seems to be what happened to, to, to Solomon. But not only did he have 700 wives, but it says he had 300 concubines. He had 300 fancy ladies in his court that he just really rather liked. Probably real, more than rather liked them. But what we're seeing is that Solomon is being disobedient to God. And what's he doing is, first of all, he's not recognizing that his wealth comes from God. He's thinking to himself, uh, you know, I've got this great kingdom and I can uh, build a beautiful palace for myself. I can have all these visitors in and they'll bring me with all gifts and that will multiply the riches of the, con- the, 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 the nation, multiply my personal wealth. Um, we can kill even more oxen, cattle, sheep, deer, gazelle, roebucks or whatever. We can have a really good time. And at the same time, he's also turning away from um, the the very God who's given him all this stuff in the first place is rebelling against God's law and he's really saying, actually, I don't care that much about God. Even though at the beginning he said, you know, I really want to walk in your ways, he did his own thing and he fell. Now, what does it say to us? We too need to remember those same three things. We have the law, Now, we're not saved by the law. We don't have to be obedient to the law in order to have our relationship with God. But once we have a relationship with God through Jesus, what happens is that we tend to want to be obedient to the law. We know that sometimes we fail, sometimes we slip up, and the scripture's quite clear that if we come to God with a repentant heart, he'll forgive us. We've actually got to kind of turn around 180 degrees. The, the Hebrew word for that is teshuvah, is repentance. It means literally I'm turning around 180 degrees and I'm turning my back and I'm walking away from the bad stuff that I've done in order that I can get back into a relationship with God. So we have to remember that we need to stay in that relationship under the law. Yes, we're under grace, but we still have uh, a, a set of standards and morals that God expects us to keep. Secondly, we don't rebel against God. It's very easy, once we let the law slip, to let other things come into place of our love of God. And it might be legitimate things, you know. We might be really good at football. And we wanna progress through the divisions, you know. And, or maybe one of our kids is really good at football and we want him to, or her to, to progress and become a, 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 a football player. But if that love of of that game, that sport, gets in the way of your love of God, then it's an idol. We might enjoy watching stuff on the TV. We might enjoy a particular type of music. We might enjoy cooking. It can be anything that can be quite legitimate. It's not a sin in itself, but if it becomes more important than God, then we're rebelling against God. And the third thing is we need to remember that God provides us with everything everything that God gives us, and we are a people who rely on God for everything that we have, and we are a people who are one, because that was the other thing, wasn't it? We need to be a people of unity. That doesn't mean that we have everything in common, you know, we can have our kind of little theological debates about, you know, exactly when Jesus is coming back, you know, which bit of the millennium, uh, certain things happen, or whether our baptism consists of, uh, you know, water on the forehead or a complete dunk in the bath. All of those things, they don't affect our salvation. They don't affect our covenant relationship with God and we can kind of disagree agreeably on those things. But when it comes to the main thing, which is Jesus, we're a people of unity and we have to remember that. And if we can remember those three things and go forward, we can continue being the people that God wants us to be. And so we've been here almost a week with you guys at Willowfield now, and you're doing it. Now, there will be some among you who are kind of thinking, mm, well, maybe I'm not quite there on this, or maybe I'm doing that. But as a church, there's this wonderful sense of unity amongst you, this sense that there's a vision that we're going for. We want to get the gospel, the good news out onto the street. And that is incredible. And We found that, that our team has found that really, really inspiring. So thank you for that. And I hope that we've been as inspiring to you also uh, and, and encourage you, but keep on doing it. You know, all the stuff that you're doing. And just, just hearing today, what do you got? You've got prison ministry, you've got women's ministry, you've got men's ministry, you've got loads of youth and children's ministry, ministry to people who have got real kind of social uh, family issues. Um, there was the sad story that David gave us this morning of the young man who committed suicide. and and you're involved in it, you are helping the world to be put right. Uh, Again, there's a Hebrew saying called tikkun olam, it's called fixing up the world. It's not the ultimate thing that we do, but once we start walking with Jesus, it's one of the things that we want to do, is to fix up the world. You're doing it, keep doing it, bless you. Thank you for having us, thank you for listening to us, and for Uh, hosting us in such a wonderful way. It's been great being with you. It's kind of sad and hard in a way that this is almost the end of the the Bible come to life, but I think the exhibition will be around a little bit afterwards. If anybody hasn't seen it yet, please do come and talk to us, and uh, let's pray. Father God, we bless you and thank you for your goodness, your kindness, all that you are to us, Uh, and we thank you that you have provided for us, You have given us a framework of of standards and morals to live by, and you've called us to be a people of unity, and we pray, Father, that you will continue to help us to do those things. As we strive to be the kind of people that you want us to be, help to make that striving easy for us, so that we can further your kingdom. We want to see more and more people come into faith in Jesus, and we can only do that when we rely on you. Please continue to show us the way, Lord, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.